The late Dean Ng of London St. Paul's Cathedral once said, the gospel is not good advice, but good news. Another said, the gospel that went out into the hard Roman world was not a robin red breast on a Christmas card. It was not the motto, peace on earth, picked out in cotton or wool. It was the affirmation of a Christ who lived, was crucified, and rose from the dead. These observations are clearly portrayed in the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River. Christian tradition puts the site of Jesus' baptism near the place where God's people entered the promised land after they had wandered for 40 years in that other wilderness. Luke's gospel tells us that after everyone else had been baptized, Jesus was baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened, the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. He had been made manifest as the Messiah to the Judean shepherds and to the Gentile magi who visited him in his infancy in Bethlehem. And now in adulthood, his identity is disclosed in his baptism. Jesus' baptism raises two important questions, and I want to explore them with you this morning. The first question is, why was Jesus baptized? I believe there are at least three answers to this question, and all three should be seen against the backdrop of the history of God's people. First, Jesus was baptized to inaugurate the new dimension of God's reign on earth. You will recall that on the way to the promised land, God's people were disobedient and they were made to wander in the wilderness for 40 years as an act of penance until an entire generation died off. God provided a leader, Joshua, to lead the people through the waters of the Jordan into the land of milk and honey, the land God had promised to their forebearers, a new nation for God's people. And as they passed through the waters, they left their past behind and emerged as a renewed and reconstituted and rededicated people. All of this was reenacted that day centuries later when Joshua bar Joseph the one we call Jesus Christ, plunged into the Jordan and emerged to lead those who would follow him into the new kingdom of God as a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Second, Jesus was baptized because he had reached the point in his life when he was ready to do what he was sent to do. His baptism didn't make him the son of God. Luke shows us that he was the son of God from the beginning. Rather, his baptism was his anointing or his ordination, if you will, for his ministry. The ministry he was to carry out now that his former years, his formative years were over. But even more important was the fact that he heard the divine voice. The words God spoke to him were the words of Psalm 2, verse 7, used at the coronation of Israel's king combined with the words of Isaiah 42, the first verse, a description of the servant of God. 
And the voice was not addressed to the entire crowd in Luke's account, but to Jesus. You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. And Jesus heard it because he was ready to hear it and ready to obey it. He was ready morally, he was ready spiritually, he was ready intellectually for the experience which came upon him there at the Jordan and for the work that was set before him. He was ready to align his will with the will of the one whose voice spoke to him. There are moments like that in just about every person's life. Moments to which we have grown and for which we are now ready to see, to hear, and to do things for which we were not ready before. Third, Jesus was baptized because he had to be involved in the life of his people. So he identified with them. He did not hold himself aloof and apart. He went down into the waters of the river just as the rest of the people did. He was sent to be Emmanuel. God with us. He accepted the sign of John's baptism. It would not be the last time he identified with his people in their sin, and he took it upon himself. That was his mission, to be the new Joshua, ready to make the purpose and destiny of his life at one with God's, ready to bring salvation's light to the world. In his baptism, Jesus shows us that the God we worship is not a God who hovers above the clouds in the mother ship. Instead, the God we adore is with us in the wilderness of life, and we are the apple of God's eye. This God is involved with people. Our God goes with us and leads us into the new and abundant life that has been promised to us. Even before God demands anything, even before God speaks, God comes to us, wedding that which is earthly with that which is heavenly. Well, the second question is this. What does this experience in Jesus' life have to do with us? First, a meaningful life begins with a vision. A vision of something supremely, desirably, and ultimately valuable. This vision may come early or late in life, but whenever it comes, life truly begins. Our own baptism, whether early or late, is the sign of the vision of God, which is held before us as God's grace works in us. Sometimes God works quietly, almost imperceptibly. At other times, God's involvement in our lives is dramatic and glorious and awesome. Whenever we claim our baptism and live our lives out of its promise, we embrace that vision. Just as Jesus embraced the vision that was given to him that day in the waters of the Jordan. When we recall that we are baptized and recapture the vision of the promised land of milk and honey where we are called to live, we can go on to be the people we are called to be. Second, a meaningful life is a life of prayer. Jesus heard the voice and the Spirit descended while he was praying. 
At the ascension, he instructed his followers to wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit came upon them. They did so, and the Spirit came while they were praying. Likewise, you and I cannot faithfully live as God's people unless and until we are a people of prayer. Every meaning-filled life, especially that of a community of faith, is a life of prayer. Episcopalians are taught that it is the duty of all Christians to work, pray, and give for the spread of the kingdom of God. Every time we join in the reaffirmation of the baptismal covenant, which we will do in just a few minutes, we say that we will continue in the apostles' teaching and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in the prayers. We're supposed to pray. There's really no place for debate over the issue. We said we would. If we want our church to amount to anything, to live up to its God-given destiny, then we need to pray and see what God can do with our prayers. And then Jesus' baptism assures us that when we follow him into the waters, we will be empowered. Empowerment, that's a big word. It means that we will be infused with a power we didn't have before. It means that we are, when we're thinking, I, I, I could never do that, or it's a good idea, but it'll never work, or well, we tried that once, or where's all the money going to come from, or it's probably somebody else's problem, or the situation is hopeless. When we find ourselves saying those kinds of things, we don't have to be afraid. The words of Isaiah come to us this morning. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you're walking through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Remember that in just a few minutes when the names of those to be baptized are called. We know their names. God knows their names and loves each one as if there were only one to love. To the questions in the baptismal liturgy, we respond, with God's help, I will. That's covenant language. It acknowledges that what we're called to do and who we're called to be requires power beyond our own. It's humanly impossible. It means I will pursue the life of faith with the empowerment of God. When the power of God enters your life and the life of the church, the incredible happens. The gospel ceases to be good advice and becomes truly good news. The incarnation ceases to be thought of in terms of robin red breasts and benign slogans and becomes a torrent of water, wind, and fire filled with energy. The baptismal waters haunt us throughout our lives. They were there before we came to faith. At some point, they washed over us, flooding our souls with a cleansing awareness that we belong to God.
and that God will never let us go. They have buoyed us up when our faith has been uncertain. They stretch out before us like an ever-flowing stream. We just can't get away from these waters. I love the stories of Norman McLean. In the one that was made into a motion picture a few years ago, he writes a line that suggests so much about the waters of baptism flowing through our lives. Eventually, he writes, all things merge into one and a river runs through it. I am haunted by waters. I don't know if Professor McLean is consciously alluding to the baptismal waters or not, but what I do know is that the promise of God is that eventually all things will merge into a beautiful wholeness according to the eternal design. And there is a river running through the garden, running through the wilderness, running through the city of God, running through our lives and the life of this community of believers. When you and I stepped into that river at our baptism, we received vision and grace and power. And those waters forever haunt us. They wash over us, cleansing us, quenching our thirst, and propelling us through life. Finally, as they stretch from one end of creation to the other, they will bring us white-robed and sparkling clean into the very presence of God. Eventually, all things merge into one, and a river runs through it. I am haunted by waters. Amen. Amen.